Exit for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X's for Podcast, check out X's for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube. Hey everybody, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their many monthly titles. Now I'm Nico, and you guys can check me out on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And kicking off our new format of Marvel Fanfare Fridays, we're going to be taking a look at three titles. Marvel Unlimited's Infinite Mighty Low Marvels 1 through 8, Defenders number 4, and Kate Bishop 1 and 2. Kicking things off is Mighty Low Marvels. Now this is a Scotty Young title. We're big Scotty Young fans here. Some of it might have skewed a little young, so maybe a little bit not for us, but some of it, like the incredibly on-point Project Runway dedication, we're such big Pruns fans here. This was such a great time to talk about, and we hope you guys enjoy our coverage as much as we enjoyed making it. And if you like what you hear, you might even like what you see, so don't forget to give us a subscribe over on YouTube and Twitter at X's for Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Exit for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics, mutants, magic, and marvels week after week through their tiniest, littlest, mightiest adventures. I'm Nico, and you guys can find me on Twitter at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. I'm Kyle, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Drantis82, that's D-R-A-N-T-I-S-8-2. And I'm Kevo, you can find me on the socials at Kevo Really, K-E-V-O-R-E-A-L-L-Y. And I'm Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at Peak Jonah, that's P-E-A-K, and we hope you survive this experience, just like everybody else, playing an Apocalypse's Game Night, uh, because that's eternal. Okay, so I think that means we're here to talk about the painfully adorable Marvel Unlimited series, Giant Size Little Marvel's Infinity Comics. Now, this series is very clearly steeped in the Chris Giascolo Lo Marvels series that used to run in the bullpen bits from back in the 90s and 2000s. So this is clearly steeped in some pretty classic Marvel traditions. There have always been pages of, you know, like what the that looked a bit like this. And for those who are unfamiliar, what the or waha are the names of the what ifs that are so fucking weird that Marvel is even acknowledging they're a little weird for a what if, right? They actually have their own separate series name. And this was sort of a fun project because it also was clearly meant to ape the incredible rise of Scotty Young's style. Now, Scotty was on the show earlier this year where he talked about the incredible rise in popularity of his Low Marvels significantly after they first debuted, which was, you know, several years earlier. So it's really interesting that this is meant to look like Scotty's work, yet it is not Scotty on art. But let's get to those credits. The writing was done by Scotty Young, as mentioned, with Drawn, as it's credited, by Dax Gordine. Coloring is Jean-Francois Bellou, with letter in by Nate Picos of Blambot. You guys will notice that we're saying of Blambot as opposed to of VC, right? Virtual Calligraphy is the in-house for Marvel print books team. Blambot is a different lettering studio, so it's always exciting to see Marvel using multiple lettering studios and getting some really unique opportunities to showcase
showcase diverse art styles. Productionin was done by Annie Chang with production managing by Tom Smith III. Editing, go Wacker. You know, Steve Wacker, one of Marvel's longest running editors. And this project was a lot of fun for me to say, we're going to do this. And then I read it and I maybe had a different experience than I expected to. Still very positive on it. But before anybody gets into any actual stories, what did you guys think going into this, looking at the art style? Did you guys expect quite such a kind of like Tiny Toons Adventures sort of thing? Or were you guys thinking maybe a little bit more Sunday morning cartoon strip? What were you guys thinking? I was expecting it to be like a kid's take on the Marvel superheroes, and I kind of got just that, and I loved it. The art style really evokes a sense of Calvin and Hobbes. You know, some of it was cute. Some of it was literally the word I would use as exhausting in terms of just how serialized it became. I think when it was a lot more fun and just quick jokes. It was a lot better than when it became super story heavy. So when I saw this art style, I thought, oh, this is Marvel's babyification of things. <laughs> Stuff like this normally isn't for me. Not to be like, I like highbrow humor because I laugh at stupid shit all the time. But a lot of what I think people think should be geared for towards kids doesn't give them the credit that they can understand jokes that anybody can laugh at as opposed to like toilet humor and things alike like that so that's what i was expecting going into this and it was like half that but the other half was really weird meta commentary on things which was bizarre in the most fascinating way because it was so surreal to see rocket raccoon talk about listening to taylor swift and I think that meta-referential quality is part of what made this such an interesting read for me because I felt like there were parts that I definitely jibed with and parts that kind of didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like Groot wanting to listen to Taylor Swift is fine. That doesn't bother me. Like I, I, I just think that's sort of like in the vein of Guardians of the Galaxy. Sure. Guardians listens to music. It's what it do. But to jump into the stories for a minute in Sorry Cap, I kind of thought Lil Stevie was like, a terrorist like (laughs) he sort of behaved like hydro cap and i was like dude i'm even nicer and i run this show well and at the same time there's a dichotomy between we see him behaving like a terror but also people being really rude and mean to him. And like, I really couldn't get what they were trying to communicate with that story or how we were supposed to feel at the end of it when like, did they leave him to die? Like what's, I I, I don't get the joke or the story or at all what they were going for with that one. Yeah, it it was a little confusing, but it felt like we were picking up in the middle of the experience where the rest of the characters have really reached their limit with the way that he was acting and them kind of returning that energy to him. It didn't feel like it was how Cap should have acted. Yeah, that's what it is for me. These versions of the characters are new to me. I'm not sure how much variation from their main versions we should be seeing. And when so much of this seems to be meta-commentary on the characters themselves, Mm -hmm. like the way Tony is presented in Project Iron Way as being so self-involved, what exactly is this story trying to say either about Cap or the way the writer feels about Cap? 
And, you know, I think that's that's sort of the heart of, I guess, what I'm asking, because I did enjoy a lot of the humor. And if you think about it, I guess that is what like uh, a Steve-esque Boy Scout would be like as a little kid. You know, that that very kind of like, no, we got to play right. No kind of mentality. It just happened to be about his thing. So it came off like a big baby. So I think, I don't know, that was probably my biggest qualm in the whole series altogether was just I really felt like this was a weird way to kick things off. Steve acting like a brat. Yeah. And that mm. I think that's really all it was for me. It was just weird that Steve was acting so bratty when it's fucking Captain America. I mean, like, you know, he's a he's a good guy. He's a good guy. And I was just a little surprised by his portrayal. But outside of that, I did think a lot of the quick tour through the Marvel Universe, uh, you know, cutieified was a, a pretty smart way to get a lot of characters on page so they can be put in stickers and uh, yeah. picture books. Mm-hmm. That was a really good way to get these iterations on page. Oh yeah, I de- I definitely buy some merch of these. I would love a Doom being all grumpy, nah. like on the uh, cover of issue four. Mm, yeah, and I love how many characters are being represented because they have the opportunity to just throw them in the background. I think we saw Medusa at one point, multiple like, times. Yeah, like, yeah. Uh, and why not? No, Jonah. Seeing Cap act, you know, kind of admittedly, not like, you know, like like a baby, but like literally, intentionally, like a baby. How do you feel about this iteration? Did it ultimately work for you? No, and it's more so, I think, because how do you translate a kid Captain America? I like the idea of him kind of being like a goody two-shoes, who's like telling people, no, we do, like, as Nico, you said, we gotta play like this, we have to follow the rules, as opposed to being a little demanding. He got a little chill entitled for me he was bordering on caillou and um <laughs> caillou is famously <laughs> a terrible example of how children act what a because it just doesn't feel like if cap if everybody in the marvel 616 universe is specifically hit what a baby ray and that's a common thing in a lot of cartoons is to turn people into babies i would expect him to act a little more like dignified and do the right thing as opposed to this is my movie you're we're going to film it like I want, gosh darn it. And I think that's what the thing is that we are all coming to agreement on, which is the, it, our sticking point is what he's upset over, which is making a baby biopic of his history. And this part in the script where you say, I'm the most marvelous person you've ever seen. Like, that's not Steve. And I think that's where we are all being a little like, ah, this just doesn't feel like it's in character for him, even as a baby. If he was like, you're not playing tag the right way, sure, that would feel very Steve and would feel very annoying to children. But yeah, what he is doing is annoying, and it's not really in character. Yeah, it's very self-centered. It's what Tony would do, not Steve. Yes, that's it. That's it. Well, from secret empire toddlers to a (laughs) brilliant toddler fashion empire, we are famously a Project Runway family. Yes. Like, we obsess over this show. We've watched nearly every iteration. We've watched every season of the main franchise of All Stars. We've, I've personally watched all of Models of, of the Runway. You know, we are a Project Runway family here. Nina Garcia is a totema to us. We'd love to have her on the show. 
I really would love to have Nina Garcia come on the show and just be like, no, I do not know why she wore that for so many years. It was so outdated when she first put it on. Like there's, I, anyway, so for Scotty Young to come along and do Project Iron Way, which to be clear with you is so accurate. Oh the yeah. The forms in the background of the talking head interviews. I was truly stunned because after that first issue, I was like, I don't know if we need to cover this. I might tell the guys we're going to do like a, a fun trivia game or something. I just don't know that this is necessary. And then I read the second one and I was like, this is literally for me. Can I confess to you? I did not get the title at first. And I was just like, Project Iron Way. I don't get what the hell is going on. Oh, okay. They're making costumes. Sure. Oh my God. That panel looks just like a one-on-one interview from Project Runway. Oh, I get it now. Yep. Like, yep. The same story slow reveal yeah because i never would have expected this or for it to be done so well in a comic and they really 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 did an amazing job of this homage to project runway it 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 got so many details correct in terms of the way the designers spoke to the camera all of it it was so perfect I, like Kevo, never expected this crossover to happen. And Scotty Young, if you're listening, which quite possibly this might be sent to you, we would love to have you on to specifically just talk about Project Runway because I feel like you can't write this and not be a giant fan. It, it is too close and it is too accurate to A, how do those designers act on reality TV and how this comic is almost a perfect parody of Project Runway that you can't, that you can't write this and not be a fan of the show. So if you want to come on and talk to us about that, please do yeah i was so i guess impressed with how well a parody of a reality show a reality competition show specifically works in comic form i really started to lose it when ghost spider said i'm not as far as long as i let him to believe but honestly something yep. there's, there's no there's no design there's no sketch Oh, and when she was like, just throw a hood on it. I was like, yes. That's yes. fashion. That's literally, there are there are designers who are like, I threw a hood on it. I'm going to go it's young and smoke now. a cigarette. Now Once they brought Thor in as one of the contestants. My daddy says I'm the best. Oh, yes. <laughs> What's really sad about a competitor like Thor is he could have either been cut at the very beginning or he could have made it all the way. And you, you never know with those guys. Based on his hair, he could have gotten to the finale. Yup. Yeah, that was always a thing. But, you know, Brandon Maxwell would always be like, I don't know. There's just something there that I want to see more. Yeah, I bet there is. <laughs> hey, Brandon, we love you if you're listening. I get it. So I really enjoyed those first two stories quite a bit. And I did think that the third story was... You know, when you have an issue with the first story, uh, the way that we kind of had a collective issue with the first story and the second story is such a hit, it does leave it where the third issue kind of makes or breaks it. And I think one of the things that made the third issue work so well for me is it just felt like more Scotty Young Rocket. Scotty Young's Rocket series was a massive hit for Marvel. It is one of his signature characters and it is a story that he is, you know, beloved for. And while I am no huge Rocket fan myself, I do recognize the cultural iteration of Rocket that is Scotty Young's is vaguely the cultural iteration of Rocket as we know him post-Guard 
Guardians. And I really, really loved the sort of contrast of Benicio Del Toro's ridiculous incarnation of the Collector as this nearly Muppet baby in Bunsen Honeydew type character. And then I just don't know how else to say it, but like Faggy Thanos was my hero. It's so (laughs) deadly. (laughs) He was everything to me in a way that I didn't know I needed. His wrinkly purple chin made me so happy. Yeah, I mostly liked this one. Any story conclusion where we don't find out what the thing he was looking for was uh, is going to give me agita. But apart from that, you know, I think this was... It was was... a burger. No, the thing that Rocket wanted. We still don't know. Oh, Oh, yeah, we don't know what that is. Yeah, you're welcome. (laughs) Welcome to my pain. (laughs) I think this is definitely one of the more child-oriented ones specifically in terms of the lightness of the subject matter and, you know, the the general fart jokeness of it all. Mm. So this issue was where I picked up on something that I hadn't picked up on um, in the previous issue that kind of made me a little uncomfortable. So the title card, this is the second issue of three where one of the characters is body shaming Hulk. Yup. And that really made me uncomfortable. And I didn't re- I didn't notice it until this issue. I kind of just scrolled past it in the in the, the issue before. And then I went back after I saw it this time. I'm like, oh no, we're not doing this, are we? And we did it in this issue as well as the next. And I get that it's just supposed to be funny, haha. He's it's supposed sweaty. To, it's supposed to be funny, but But it just doesn't land in a world where people like legitimately have conditions that they are shamed for. Mm-hmm. Like people are terrorized for this stuff it just doesn't work yeah yeah you know if instead they had done a punchline of in one issue they comment on deodorant and the next issue they're like "Ooh, sandalwood smells nice like if they'd gone in a more positive direction maybe it would have been more okay but it was literally three issues in a row of first two heroes and then a villain commenting on his body odor like like negatively like that's that's you know i think that's what it's about I concur, and it's that, uh, as what I talked about, this lowbrow idea of what you think kids would find funny, because I think that's a lot a common thing that kids are often talked about. It's like, he smells, haha, it's a funny joke, and you're like, no, that's not really funny. That can be a lot of different things. It could be medical and or, you know, involve mental illness. It's not. But issue three, I think, probably is my second favorite issue, followed by issue number two. I thought it was pretty good, and it, I think Scotty Young does really well in voicing Rocket. Do I think some of the jokes are a little too low for me? Sure, but that's just also comedy in general. Comedy is subjective. I'm not going to find everything funny and not everybody will find things that I find funny funny. I really liked this little mission that they went on Mm. and I liked that it was a little tour of, um, you know, Space World and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed it a lot. Now, speaking of humor being this sort of ephemeral concept that's really hard to nail down, the fourth issue of this... I'm certainly not accusing anyone of theft, so I want to really, really start that with what I'm saying is it played into a popular story type, not that it is a direct copy of the thing that it reminds me of, but it reminds me very much of a Flash animation video that was hosted on Newgrounds by a group called Floating Hand Studios. Floating Hand Studios was famous for making incredibly smart satirical X-Men parodies, and they branched out into the rest of the Marvel Universe at large. 
And one of the videos they did was a group of villains talking about what each one of their signatures are and why they might need fashion updates or not. And it's stuff like pointing out that Carnage looks like a hemophiliac's attempt at forming a scab or Doc Ox mullet looks like the only thing it could inflict is pain to your achy breaky heart. Like it's sort of pop culture references going at the villains that made sense culturally at the time. And I think that's sort of a longstanding tradition that we for many years sort of jokingly held to a lower amateurish standard. I think about the Pawnee Holiday Show where they accidentally figured out that Councilman Dexhart was going to have another scandal. And I really love that they put this on Marvel.com. I don't think there is anything amateurish about this style of humor. I think taking a meta-referential attempt at looking at stuff is really important. I think what made it feel perhaps not as original was because it has always been a form of fan response. Mm. It maybe felt to me like some of the jokes were perhaps not as fresh, but that Marvel took the time to do this in an official book is one of those examples of where things we long said are, oh, that's fanfic. No, it's not fanfic. People want it. So if you make it, people will pay for it. It's only fanfic because the big studios were afraid to publish something that different. And I thought this was a really good example of growing by looking at what's come before. And I think even if you look at the rest of Floating Hands oeuvre as it were and the other pieces they put out they also have a video where it's several dr dooms talking about the things they've all accomplished I have there's a x-men story where they're all talking about how many times they've all died and that's also very reminiscent of this um, issue wants of... to know if other realities count <clears throat> And that's also very reminiscent of all of these different villains talking about their accomplishments and who really is the biggest bad. So, like, even in Floating Hands itself, they did that joke and that idea of a joke several times. So it's not as if it's not even overused by them themselves. I thought it was a a cute issue. Yet another instance of Doom kind of looking down on everybody and then having the rug pulled out from under him. And I mean, anytime that Doom gets the rug pulled out from under him, I am a fan. Mm. Um, <laughs> it was cute him describing each of their strong points. So Jonah, this sort of reminded me in a lot of ways of the sort of YouTube videos you enjoy, which are frequently comedians creating reactive humor to a prompt. And that's sort of almost what it felt like Doom was doing, like prompt riffs on these characters was the realism of the humor the sort of meta value of it something that came across for you or was that something that didn't work for you as well I'm a little bit more in the middle ground for issue number four because I like the idea and I like how it was done, but this joke didn't really have anything new to it. The entire prompt that I think was like, you know, the basis for this issue and the comedy behind it, I think just has been done a little bit too many times. 
And if you don't have a little bit of a different take or your twist isn't something so out of left field and weird or like really punching up what you want to do, I don't know if it really can land as much because I'm going to be comparing it to every other iteration of this kind of joke. And it falls a little bit more in the middle for me because it's nowhere near the worst or bad issue of this group that we're given. But I find it hard for it to stand. It's, uh, I find it hard to see how it can stand out uh, for the other issues to read or the other issues to enjoy it of like, I would go back and read the Ironway issue, uh, Project Ironway. I'd go back and maybe read the Rocket and the Groot issue. I don't know if I'd go back and read this. And I really love that take specifically because that is how I felt a l- about a lot of the content that didn't land for me in this and throughout the series as far as you know, it's not that this is a bad take, but it's not really a fresh or original take. And, you know, y- you put in all this effort to just kind of give a mediocre take on an old joke. And speaking of doing a take on an old idea, issues five through seven sort of surprised me by being a three-parter. And it was a three-part statement on Age of Apocalypse, better known as the AOA, but through a vehicle I didn't expect, D&D. And one of the things I thought was really kind of magical about the way this recording came together was, like I said, I just wanted to do it because we're big Scotty Young fans on this show. And it seemed like a fun thing to cover. We love doing the infinite comics. And then sure enough, issue number two was that incredible synchronicity of Project Runway, which is so many of our families, you know, go to reality show. But, you know, Jonah and Kyle, you guys are such tabletop RPG kind of guys. And it was so fortuitous that there was so much humor derived from the situational, again, meta referential storytelling device here. Did you guys see that sort of D&D AOA connection? I loved how they were making their characters. Wolverine had to make modifications to his because it was too close to what he actually looked like. It was a really great way to summarize what the basis of of AOA. (laughs) The idea of what you make jokes about this tabletop game, I think, works. I think it would have been maybe a little bit funnier, even better, if you had these characters that kind of looked like uh, the players, but wasn't exactly, and Apocalypse was the DM, but Apocalypse was just a railroading bad DM. I think that's a lot funnier, and then have the reveal be they were just playing D&D the entire time, as opposed to it being they were sent to an alternate timeline and needed to get sent back with help from Cable and Bishop. I found it a little muddled of like, hey, we're about, we're doing a D&D joke, but then you don't actually do the joke. You like you set up the punchline, and then uh, you, set, you set up the joke, and then you never get to a punchline because you never had intentions to do any punchlines. Like, they, every time they rolled the dice, I wanted to see what they rolled. Like, Mag- I, Magneto would cheat. Magneto would cheat. He would make his do- dice roll higher, because there's a little bit of metal in them, or he'd use metal dice specifically. I want jokes like that. Magneto's a bad sport, and he said when he rolls bad i really like your sad nito master of the sad dice i really think this is a a really charming character you've come up with uh i'd read his solo adventures and you know i i do hear what you guys are saying because what i enjoyed the most about this story was the aoa references number one everybody was in like identical aoa costumes number two there were people who never should have gotten adorable versions like sugar man what the fuck is wrong with you that you drew an adorable baby sugar man what the fuck is wrong with i want that i love that so you shouldn't that's a that's a bad call 
I really enjoyed, hey, this guy looks like Bishop, but with less curls. That was super cute. I ultimately did think that this was just like a really great loving tribute to AOA. I, however, am not the biggest AOA fan. If you want my summary of AOA, it's sort of like a really long, dark days of future past plus Blink. So I don't have a whole lot of need to go back to AOA, but I feel like because this was sort of charming and Saturday morning cartoon, Sunday morning comic strip-ish. It felt like kind of a harmless take on it. I really enjoy all of the pot shots throughout this series at Apocalypse's expense because he is sort of the doofiest villain. And I like that everybody's kind of like, you put A's on everything. And it's because the A stands for awesome. Like, that's adorable. I would have really, I think I would have been maybe a little less critical and maybe able to enjoy it more if it wasn't three issues as opposed to two. I kind of do think it could have been just two issues and still been the exact same story i think kind of towards the middle it kind of you, you it kind of did lose me a little bit uh, in terms of interest and i think i would have preferred like one more solo issue as opposed to three of these mm. of like picking other characters like why not, why not a black panther story yeah it really lost me by the end too and i think part of that even does come from the fact that we aren't as familiar with the story ourselves so this really felt like the least accessible to casual fans like all the other stories you just kind of needed like a cursory understanding of who the character is but like this i don't think is as exciting or engaging if you don't know the story better i would agree i feel like that's probably what kyle also felt about the project runway story Mm -hmm. that you know a lot of it is really good specific humor but specific humor doesn't translate to people who don't have that specific knowledge and i think the the sort of trade-off is the hyper specific humor of number two and the hyper specific humor of four and five through seven are kind of of, you know, I felt like number eight was a lot like number one. And eight felt like sort of a one note joke with a lot of other little one note jokes throughout, mm. which mm-hmm. worked for what it was. But by number eight, I felt comfortable saying these all felt a little too long. I think they all could have been like a quarter shorter and I would have enjoyed them just as much. I wonder if the length is meant to be a specific length that holds people's attention, but to compare these to another product that we took a look at jeff the land shark the it's jeff infinite comic the Hmm. issues were shorter they were cuter they were punchier they moved faster i'm not saying i wish this was more like that but in that regard it kind of feels like it's jeff could be read by like a three-year-old because it's just really cute pictures and Mm -hmm. this was maybe meant to be read by like a six-year-old and you know it's like the lowest age group that could appreciate it not like this has the reading level of a six-year-old just like the lowest reading level that would go this is cool I'm gonna look at my parents iPad or look at my own you know tablet whatever I thought number eight was a really good case for if there is a season two they should all be a bit shorter how did you guys feel about the Mr. Fantastic issue did you guys feel it was a stretch (laughs) (laughs) beautiful no notes but yes yeah yeah See, and my favorite family circus were always the ones where, like, Jeffy walked fucking everywhere and, like, he had to follow the trail. I loved those. So I would have thought I'd like it more. But, like, 
God, I know it's just supposed to be silly fun, but some of it just got too fucking stupid, like him going in the elevator. That makes no fucking sense. It doesn't. That particular section definitely hurt. Um, I feel like there were too many panels of just his arm going down hallways. I did like Big Guy Movie Night, where they referenced issue one. I did like that. Like I said, so many of these stories felt like they went on like eight pages too long. And when yeah. you have no ability to see how many pages there are, it always feels like eight pages too long. Mm-hmm. I wish that you could see a progress bar. You've kind of oh, got the... You kind of do. Yeah, you've got the scroll bar on the right, but that's nothing. It, it, do- it doesn't show on my iPad until you get to the very bottom. No it's, thanks. Yeah, it's yeah. you can't see where you, where you are in the story. So, my question for you guys. Since Marvel Unlimited isn't a service where you're specifically paying for the new content, you're never really paying for these issues. They're not free, but they're included in your Marvel Unlimited subscription. I'm never going to get rid of Marvel Unlimited. Not only do I need it for this show, but it really is my go-to, oh, motherfucker, let me just flip through my phone for a minute. This is going to keep me busy. I'm so thrilled, right? It's my go-to for that. So, I know I would keep subscribing, and if there is a second season of this, I'll probably check it out. It's not going to be at the top of my poll or anything the way I would clamor for a second season of It's Jeff. I enjoyed the first issue of Lucky, but the fact that a second issue hasn't dropped, I'm not crying just yet, you know? How do you guys feel? If there's a second season of Mighty Little Marbles, are you guys gonna download it to your tablet? Totally. Infinity comics aren't really my top priority. I'll, I'll read them when I remember about them, but I don't go and read them as they're being released. So, <laughs> Jonah, what about you? If they do a second season of Mighty Law Marvels, would you find yourself picking up that title every week? Yeah, especially if it's Infinity Comics. They're really easy to read. I still have things I can enjoy about them. So yeah, why not? Live a little. It's fun. Hey everybody, welcome back. Now this next segment, everybody here loves Defenders so much as a title, and we even brought in some help to cover this next issue. So Chad from Grey Malkin Pod rejoined us the way he did on the previous holiday specials, and it was just such an amazing time. We love when his voice comes in and gets to talk comics with us, and we hope you guys enjoy this next segment. Hey everybody, welcome to another exciting segment of Extra for Podcast, where we talk about mutants, magic, and Marvel week after week. I'm Nathan, you can find me online on Twitter, at DazzlerWayAway, mainly Twitter, very rarely on Instagram, but Twitter's where I really am. Hello, it's uh, it's me, Steve, and you can find me on Twitter at HowdyDuda, that's H-O-W-D-Y-D-U-D-A. And that would make me Raven, aka Dame Red Bento. You can find me over mostly on Twitter and TikTok, and just go ahead, come on over, start a conversation with me. I'm quite friendly once you get to, you know, talking about something. Uh, and my name is Chad. I am the host of the Gray Malkin Lane podcast, a podcast where we're reviewing X-Men comics from the 1960s from a queer perspective. We're having a blast. Uh, I keep my own social media private because I have kids, but you can find the podcast, Gray Malkin PP, like podcast on Twitter. 
or just Graham Malkin Lane on Instagram, and I'm here to chat anytime. And today we are covering the fourth cosmos and Doctor Strange and Tia and Cloud, and we're def covering Defenders number four now. This issue was brought to us by our storytellers Al Ewing and Javier Rodriguez. Our letterer is VC's Joe Carmagna. Cover it by Javier Rodriguez, and design is by VC's Corey Petit. And so. <sighs> I gotta start with the question, Steve. You've talked a lot about how the Defenders has really opened your eyes to a newer understanding of the tarot. And knowing you, you you know tarot a lot more than most of us dare say, especially me. What really has been the thing that opened your eyes the most to a new understanding of tarot? Well, I'm like you know, I'm not really an expert. I just know maybe a little bit more than some of the people on this call. I don't I don't know, Chad, what your experiences with the tarot is, but I I started this series off and felt like I was going to need to do a lot of research and like, you know, really deeply think about these tarot cards to like understand what Al Ewing was getting at through the series. And more and more as I've gone through the series, I've just realized that like I'm coming to understand the tarot and how it works more through reading this series rather than the other way around. This issue in particular really nailed that home for me. I mean, the High Priestess issue with uh, Harpy was really eye-opening for me, a card that I didn't really understand a lot before that. This one was just like really hit me in the feels in a lot of ways. I mean, th this issue is extremely near and dear to my heart. It's one of my my favorite comics I've read this year and as it relates specifically to the tarot just like understanding understanding the lovers a little bit better than I think I normally have before understanding the the deep necessity of communication and what it means to truly know one another and the ways in which we filter and interpret our our communication through each other and the cages that we that we keep ourselves in when we're not able to fully like be ourselves and know know who we are and express who we are fully um, and that between that and and the, the transformation in this issue that maybe we'll get into a little bit later from one tarot card to the next really uh, really drove home a lot for me about what I had been what I had been lacking in my understanding of, of the journey. You asked what my experience with tarot is. Most of my exposure to tarot actually comes from Marvel Comics. Writers in Marvel often seem obsessed with tarot. There's the there's the Hellions character tarot and the X of Swords events and the Marvel tarot book. I, I always feel like I need to go get a textbook so, <laughs> so I can reference all the points they're making. But uh but I feel like it's captured really effectively in this book. It taught me some things and made me want to know more. So I've actually, you know, you know, been a gentle practitioner of and read tarot for probably the last 20 years. You know, I always keep a book on hand to go back and re-reference because sometimes certain words pop out more than others. But I love the fact that you don't have to be an expert in tarot to understand the meaning of the cards, especially when it comes to these characters, because there's there's actually really good dialogue in there's a thing that very much harkens back to um, kind of like retro comics and the way you'd have exposition sometimes uh, in the corner just to kind of keep you updated on what's going on. But they did it really effectively here for, you know, these characters not only exploring what their meaning is hard-wise, but what it means to them as as a being, an entity, yes. a thing with sapius. And it was so beautifully done. This issue obviously features the lover's card, which is the card for Cloud. So, Chad, I gotta ask, because I don't, I don't know, what is your experience with Cloud? Is this like your first series really getting to know them or is this you know do you have previous experience with them with from the new defenders yeah know. no i do actually i've uh, i've been a comics reader since i was a kid i actually worked on the marvel handbooks for a long time mm. and uh i feel like i have this walking encyclopedia of knowledge <laughs> regarding random marvel craziness uh so I've, i i actually really love the old defenders and new defenders series particularly the original run cloud at the time
time was such a bizarre character. It really seemed to play on kind of what would be understood at the time as kind of gender bending. There was a lot of curiosity and confusion. But when you boil Cloud down, it's a sentient supernova who took on the form of two American teenagers and would bounce back and forth between their shapes and then went back to being a supernova. It's a comic book craziness at its finest. It is not a character I ever expected to see again, frankly. Yeah. Seeing the way that those maybe initially more uh, spectacular aspects are reconciled in this issue, I think did a lot towards making Cloud a character I'd be much more interested in seeing again. Yeah, I, I think honestly their evolution was so perfectly timed because we have so much more understanding or at least better knowledge now of, you know, the spectrum of, of gender and presentation. So just because somebody is female does not mean that they have to be feminine presenting. Just because somebody is male does not mean that they have to be male presenting. And if you're non-binary or gender fluid, you present as you wish. So it was great to see that the, the, the authors gave us this nod that let us know that, yes, we're going to advance this character by actually updating this character to, you know, meet the times. And I mm, loved it. So, so profound. Al Ewing has been pretty open about his admiration and respect for trans people publicly. And we see him, you know, creating these characters like Charlie McGowan in uh, Immortal Hulk and then doing this incredible work with Cloud in this Defenders series that's redefining the way people look at gender and the portrayal of these characters in comics. Mm -hmm. I think it's a really beautiful job he's done. Yeah, I think that my favorite part of the whole deal is that not only is it like it's a it's a narrative choice. It's one that makes sense in the narrative where, you know, this is all about Cloud and the rest of the Defenders, in fact, escaping from this um, status quo cycle of of archetypes and patterns that are binding, constricting in cages and coming through a journey to where they can be liberated from the gender binary, from uh, old patterns, old ways, um, old words that no longer describe who they are and what they are to the universe, to each other, to themselves. But like, it is also, as Raven alluded to, it is literally a journey along the tarot from the lovers to the world. Rachel Pollock in her books talks a little bit about esoteric beliefs that the world card was intended to be a character that embodies both the masculine and feminine and everything in between all at once. And I think that it's lovely how we see something Cloud go from the lovers representing, you know, male and feminine aspects uh, together on one card and the two forms that Cloud has been kind of shifting from between in the past, but now going to something that the world is often described as like, you know, satisfaction and fulfillment and completion, the uniting of seemingly oppositional poles and dynamics. Seeing the, the form that Cloud takes at the end was like incredibly powerful for me, seeing the expression and unity of all the different sides of being. And there's a, there's a little bit that Rachel Pollock writes in her uh, 78 Degrees of Wisdom right at the beginning of the world description that just really stuck with me throughout this issue. And it was the, what can we say? of an understanding of freedom and a rapture beyond words. The unconscious known consciously, the outer self unified with the forces of life, knowledge that is not knowledge at all, but a constant ecstatic dance of being. They're all true and all not true. I do love that they were able to become like a more perfect gestalt form, like those more idealized or maybe how they really felt they were inside. I do still question only mainly allowing trans or non-binary characters to exist as these more alien or supernatural forces, right? Cloud is not a perfect representation for a non-binary individual, but I do love that Marvel is at least allowing those characters to be used. Like, I also, if you look at uh, Angela's wife, Sarah, who is a trans character, she is also an angel and she's not human herself, whereas we really get very few human or human-human mutant 
trans characters like Jesse Drake we've only really seen in that Marvel Comics Presents run and in the uh, Pride one shot and then Charlene McGowan who thankfully was part of you know both Immortal Hulk and Omega Flight but outside of those two characters I really don't see a lot of human rep for trans or non-binary people or any non-gender conforming person anywhere in Marvel that really could speak to more of a human experience yeah even even yeah. on their um what is it even in uh, new mutants uh they do have some more non-binary and trans representation but it's exceedingly few and far between we haven't really seen them at the forefront so and we only know that because vita they've talked about it on their twitter yeah. and not because it's been explicitly said in the comics correct yes correct. yeah absolutely and and is... i want to point out that series you mentioned earlier was gamma flight oh thank you thank you gamma flight thank you oh my god i said omega flight oh my god yeah. you're good just for people who want to find out the great series by a trans writer yes so often i feel like this story of queer people and trans people in particular is about looking for home looking for the place we belong where we can feel safe to be ourselves and this issue represents that for me a lot cloud gets taken to a previous version of universe uh, where they feels free to take on their true form then chooses to stay there as they find a space that they belong and don't have to hide or or be anything but who they are which is such a beautiful thing that i think frankly only people who've been in situations where they feel unsafe know what it's like to find a place where you can finally be safe be who you are that that essence of found family if you will cloud reaching outside of their cage saying that they can grow and know one another creating a shape for themselves just absolutely i i loved that becoming the archetype and becoming free part at the end that's it's so meaningful i also really loved seeing all the concepts like i could tell exactly who uh each of the the heroes and villains were and like i was like oh my god i know who they are without actually seeing their faces but it was great that you couldn't see just a particular you know version of like you know captain america or iron man beast because it meant there was a lot more wiggle room, I guess you could say, uh, to to create new characters from just the concept. You wouldn't have to come up with the same look every time. And so I think it's kind of like a representation of how each artist and each person takes on like their own meaning, changing a little bit each time. The use of the color in this issue, did y'all get the same feeling that I did, that this use of color and the, the art style itself was helped create this otherworldly feel for this fourth cosmos? I personally, think that if we had gotten a standard artistic style like it wouldn't have felt as otherworldly i do think even the use of a little bit more of the the comical style like if you're looking at page 12 on digital where the masked writer is fighting the architect and he looks like a big cartoon and they're like kaboom like even that art really helps add to the otherworldly feel of this fourth mm-hmm. well and they're specifically saying about this universe that it's kind of the creation of magic and then you see this panel i think it's page six where Doctor Strange is struggling to communicate with these blue aliens and uh, the female alien opens her mouth and a big pile of color just falls out of it and it's not until after that they can speak and then when they speak every letter is a different color it's uh, it's this kind of fantastic way of of, of communicating the strangeness of this place it was really beautiful yeah how did you like the 4R1 as the the primordial fantastic 4 I thought that was a really interesting
interesting mixture going on here of the people. I mean, the thing is really apparent because it's just a rock archetype. <laughs> <laughs> that's uh, that's something that was done in the Marvel Marvel Tarot book years back as well. If I'm recalling, it's been some time since I've read it, but they describe the Fantastic Four as the four elements and how mm-hmm. four is a magic number. And it, it kind of ties in all these other areas of the Marvel Universe in which four things tie together as one. I'm really excited for the fifth issue of this book so that I can go back and read the whole thing page by page and feel like I know what's going on. But I feel like once it's over, I'm going to view this issue differently. I've been rereading each issue over every time we get a new one, and I always find something new. I'm sure you will. I'm excited to see the breaking of the the four motif because from the beginning, we've been seeing the, the cyan magenta yellow key four is the magic number throughout and we're finally getting to f- hit that five and I'm, I'm really interested to see about it mm-hmm. holy shit i didn't even tie that together oh my god <laughs> yeah we still don't know who that is and i feel like it could be anybody from like uncle ben to some random <laughs> <person> <laughs> to or it could be or it could be galactus i mean we, it just it could be anyone <laughs> right? if it's uncle ben that would be amazing <laughs> I told him with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> yeah, definitely with Galactus power comes Galactus responsibility. As we've seen time and time again from this character, you might be right. It's Uncle Ben. Hey, you know what? There is precedent for that because, you know, there was that Marvel team up where Aunt May became the Golden Oli, the Herald of Gal- Galactus, you know. <laughs> so maybe, <laughs> if, you know, Uncle Ben is <laughs> the mass writer, go for it. <laughs> Friend of the show, Scott Yar has suggested that it is the original Human Torch, which I don't see why it would be, but I'm totally into that idea. If it ends up being the original Human Torch, I'll be just delighted. Yeah, when he said that, I was like, holy shit, if it's Jim Hammond, I would like, bam, sign me the fuck up. (laughs) But so are there, do you guys have any speculations as to who he is, though? Like, who is he? It's not Namer. That's so (laughs) easy. He's like like Namer, but it's so clearly not. I feel like once we find out who it is, we can go back and look at the appearances of this character which have kind of been all over the place right and i think we will see that ewing left us clues along the way but i but i have no idea who it is right now i can't Uh, put it together yet he's a writer that i trust to pay off though right sometimes you get a promise and then there's not the payoff that you hope for but he's definitely there's gonna be a payoff here oh okay and go back and see all the little easter eggs that were left for us but i don't feel like there's been any specific clues that have pointed in a particular direction at least not obviously so yeah, he could be just about anybody at this point. He could even not be a he. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what did we think about the introduction of the Pilgrim? I thought this was a character that was really just fucking fascinating to me. What did what, what are your guys' thoughts? I thought it was interesting that we saw these kind of colorful shots of heroes earlier in the issue, and they replicated a lot of our heroes from, you know, 616, right? There's yes. Daredevil and Thor and Spider-Man and, and Captain America and Beast and Bullseye. Yeah, well, they're all in these different forms, as if the world kind of repeats itself. And then you get that really creepy version of, of Eternity. So by the time we met this character, I feel, like, I feel like my brain was already like, whoa, what is happening? <laughs> <laughs> The Pilgrim I thought was neat. I, you you could sense this style of art completely change all over again. Different color tones, mm-hmm. different ways of doing the lettering, the, the colors playing out differently. It was really stunning. I like that you identify the True Believer as Eternity because I feel like the True Believer is absolutely like a representation of the comics medium, right? Mm-hmm. In yeah. as much as this universe sort of is the comics medium. Well, I mean, it's one of the things that uh, Stan Lee used to say. Well, hello, True Believers. Oh, yeah, So, of course, yeah, I right. thought that was a a nod back, you know, to, of course, the creation of 
comic books as we know them. Yes. So, so wait, then is the fourth cosmos like almost our cosmos? Like, I, I obviously not, but like in a meta like Marvel six one six, like, is this supposed to represent like just us as the creation of comics? You I could look at it that way. I see that as Stanley's era of comics. Okay. Where they were creating like slightly more solid archetypes of characters that you could repeat and do um, elongated stories instead of one shots. And that's why you have like the Daredevil, you've got um, the Beast that could also be kind of seen as Wolverine. We've seen multiple iterations of Captain America, but again, they always follow kind of a certain look and feel to them. So yeah, I think it the fourth is supposed to represent Stan Lee Golden Age era of comics where they were coming up with the concepts for heroes that we would later attach quite a bit of nostalgia. Oh, they've, they've been around for like this many years and they've done all these huge things and they've got this giant following because, you know, multiple generations know them. So yeah, it's like I, like I said, it's like a walk back through comics history in a way. I appreciate so much the reverence that Al has for the source material. We've we've seen him do it in Empire, the upcoming Reckoning War. There, there's writers that are drawing upon things that are long forgotten. It's making people go dig through their back issue bins, you know? I think it's, uh, yeah. I think it's really fun to see him craft all of this into new storylines and new reverence. That's something I've really enjoyed about Al Ewing since I first started reading his work, uh, probably with like Avengers No Surrender. I could see how he was reaching into like these deep beloved wells of probably his comic book upbringing and stuff that he had read as he became a professional and trying to like kind of see the way that the tapestry all fits together even when it doesn't. And that's something I respect about a lot of my favorite major comic book writers and it's something that really drew me to Al from the very beginning and it never ceases to amaze me. Uh, when you have a writer using, you know, the Kotati and Galactus's mom as your <laughs> as your moments <laughs> and he's making you care about it, you know he's doing a good job. Yeah, yeah. Is Maybe he making you quote, air quote care? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I love any story well told. Uh, yes. And, and he's telling good stories. Yeah. Yeah, I like a good story that's also smart. I, I mean, a, a smart story that's also good, I should say. Like, I like when I read a story that is, oh, it's brilliant. It makes me think about comics in a way that I never thought about comics. But it's also like a good emotional story that like has a, a deep heart and a driving plot to it. Like, this is going somewhere. It's taking me on a journey. It makes me feel a lot of things. It's not just a comic that's smart for being smart. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, with the series, was there any character that you came in, you know, wanting to know more about or that you came out of it loving? I, I got to say, for me personally, I came into the series wanting to see a lot more Cloud because they're fucking awesome and I haven't seen them since the fucking New Defenders. I came away just loving, I air quote, loving Taya, like fucking Galactus's mom. Like, oh God, yeah. why did I not know I needed that character before? And like... Why do I not want her to go back to her reality and kind of like come live in 616 and maybe come talk some shit to Galactus or like whatever? <laughs> Cloud did show up in one issue of the Fear Itself event in the miniseries. Yes, really? They did, they did, they did. So Fear Itself, the Deep, number four. Cloud joins the Defenders for one battle. But yeah, you do see Cloud once in, in that issue. Wow, I'm going to have to go and check that out because for me, yeah, Cloud was the breakout character of this series. I was, going into it, I was excited to see more Harpy because I fell in love with Harpy over the course of uh, oh, Immortal Hulk and uh, yeah, Gamma Flight. Seeing Harpy in here was really cool and it really has been a lot of fun with that character. 
character, but like, yeah, absolutely. I did not expect to fall so hard for Cloud. It it helps that as we're recording this, I have just seen the Matrix Resurrections last week. <laughs> yes, you did. Several times since then. So like, it's coming out at a very important time for me personally, especially when thinking about gender. And mm. this just, it really came at a right time. And it would have been great otherwise, but it is just, I've already had all this on the brain and this just hits all the right spots for me. And yeah, I need to stick around, please. I definitely need more of Galactus's mom. She is just, she's so fun and so boisterous. And, you know, just, oh my God, I just love every inch of her. She's just so much fun to have around. And uh, I don't know if she would talk shit at Galactus. Not out of fear, but just out of the, wow, oh, this is what you grew up to become. Just, I think it would be more of a mother's disappointment. Oh no. Like, wow, I raised you to be better. I raised you to be like the ultimate scienceer. And instead you're here just eating. Eating, you know, worlds and and people's hope and joy. This is what I fought against. Ugh. She would be like, "This is what you have." Air quote become. Mm-hmm. Really, what is <laughs> air quote wrong with you? Wasn't it wasn't an issue one that Silver Surfer gave Baby Galactus like a reverence for humanity that he'd carry with him throughout his life? Am I remembering that right? Yeah, he did. Yeah, do that. He did. Yes. yeah. I think yeah. that was like <laughs> just a little bit Silver Surfer being like, "Now you're gonna suffer because now you're gonna know you're doing it wrong, even though you have to be doing it." <laughs> Like, he did give him a reverence for life. I, I wonder if that changes anything or if it just makes Galactus the sad boy we know. Mm. Like, you can't kill Hitler as a baby, sad boy. but you can give him ulcers. Yes. <laughs> you can give him regret, I guess? <laughs> Guilt? Oh, if he did kill him, it just, like, start a new timeline anyway, right? Mm. True yeah. enough. One, one would hope. <laughs> I don't know what you could do with Silver Surfer's character after he murders a baby, even if it was Galactus. That's a rough one. <laughs> that is a rough one. I mean, technically, he has murdered babies. He's He's had whole planets eaten. Yeah, yeah. that's a very but good that point. Was as was that was as a Herald. He was also the rationalizing. <laughs> What do y'all think the mystery is? Like that mention of I'll see you at the mystery. Like, oh, I'm so fascinated. Like, and I can't wait to see how the series ends. But like, what do y'all think it is? I'm guessing it's uh just one of the previous incarnations of the universe. I'm guessing it's birthed out of mystery, something like that. So they're going to travel farther back in time uh, and uh, and meet Cloud there for some sort of battle. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But that was kind of my prediction. I'm completely open to it actually being the one above all from the, uh, sorry, from a, a previous Al Ewing series that i guess I, that's a spoiler still <laughs> from a previous al ewing series I, out already i'm hoping it's just god <laughs> from immortal hulk but that's uh that's mm. that, that would just be a lot of fun for me but also i think that when cloud talks about meeting you at the mystery it's a reference to clouds like sort of ascension and identification with the, the world card the the end mm. point of a tarot destination so i think that like just in a lot of ways, that's going to be like maybe the last page of the final issue. You know, Chad, you mentioned something that like I didn't talk about and I've really wanted to talk about. But the lettering in this issue, I think, has to be one of the unsung heroes just from the the use of color as actual words for some of the characters to the use of different colors as the foreign one or the one in form. And the use of the pilgrims lettering, like everything the letterer has done in this issue has just made it extra, like really enhanced enhanced it like i know sometimes you you we talk about like you know nobody really noticing this lettering until it's a bad letterer but like i've got to say like this lettering went above and beyond in this issue the last time i heard you say that exact quote about lettering was when we were also talking about joe carmania (laughs) during the (laughs) class art recording uh yeah you're right if there's somebody who breaks that rule it's joe carmania who i always notice and is always good Mm mm-hmm 
What are our expectations going into this final issue of Defenders? Like, I've got to say, this series, like, blew my mind as to expectations. I was expecting, you know, maybe, maybe a halfway fun romp. But knowing Ewing, I should have, like, gone into expecting this amazingly, like, metatextual, metaphysical, like, mind-blowing experience. But I expected, hey, I'm going to get a fun romp. I'm going to get to see more Cloud. I'm going to get to see more Harpy. Didn't know I would fall in love with Collectus's mom. But, like, what are we really looking for from the wrap-up of the series, which is right here? I want a big payoff. Uh, I, I'm hoping for the mystery of the man in the mask to be something that blows my mind that makes me want to go back and read everything before. I, I want some like really healing energy for uh, for some of the characters as well. I want to see them land in, in really beautiful places. Yeah, I will be happy with however the series ends. I cannot imagine an ending to this that will be a letdown. I'm not used to that from Al Ewing, and I don't think this is leading up to that. I honestly will be excited whichever way it goes. I'm expecting to felt like I just took a walk through an acid trip on this next one because they've done so good at just like warping reality as as you're reading through it and making it such a very interesting and in-depth and, and mindful read that you have to like go back and like reread make sure that you understood and it's just it's oh, it's been so well done that honestly i think this next one might address the mystery of is the artist in the hero or does the mm. hero stand alone because i think a lot of artists put a bit of themselves into their work so even even if they're writing different characters you can always kind of see that character from the creator you know what i'm expecting is just a big wrap up to this amazing story i would love for taya to like like i said to end up in 616 in our current cosmos um i would love for i you know i love cloud being an archetype of the fourth cosmos but i really want to see them be able to shine more in our current continuity so i'd love to see some kind of reconciliation of that and you know what i'll be honest the mask writer like it really doesn't matter to me who the mask writer is because i'm sure the clues are going to be somewhat always there and i don't think that's going to be a satisfying conclusion to anyone if we get the answer to that in this last issue but i just i really want to see more of this character development that we've gotten i've loved how the individual issues have gotten to show some spotlight on the characters you can tell that ewing loves every single character that he picked for this what i want is just a really satisfying conclusion to this to maybe drive a further mystery because i don't want this to be the end of ewing's non-guardians of the galaxy non-sword non-ekman red type book i want to see a spark for some kind of continuation because mm-hmm. i'm going to tell you ewing is a writer that like there's very few writers that i would compare to hickman but like ewing is like fucking on hickman's level or could potentially be there am i understanding you right when i think you're saying that you want to see an al ewing defenders ongoing because i would oh yeah oh absolutely yeah. i would love that i love everything defenders like sign me up for anything al ewing like if al ewing were to write the phone book i literally would like <laughs> tweet about it all the time Hey everybody, Nico here one last time. Now this Kate Bishop segment, it's such a great time to see Kate Bishop kind of rise into prominence with this new wave of titles that we've been seeing, characters from the last 15-20 years really rising, like America and Reptile. And this definitely goes in that class of really great character pieces. We hope you guys enjoy our coverage of the first two issues of Hawkeye as much as we enjoyed making it. We hope you guys enjoyed the first week of our new format, delivering three episodes a week themed by content. And until next time guys, keep those mutant lights 
lit, those Krakoan gateways open. Enjoy this last segment, and we'll see ya. Hey everyone, welcome back to X's for Podcast, the show where we take a look at comics mutant, magic, and marvelous archers week after week through their many monthly titles. I'm your host, Jonah, and you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at PeakJonah. That's P-E-A-K. Hey everybody, this is Nico, and you guys can find me firing off some trick arrows over on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And that would make me your art ho auntie, Raven, a.k.a. Dame Red Bento. Come find me over on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Start up a conversation. I'm a little bit of an introvert. What can I say? And I'm Mikey. You can find me over on YouTube uh, making all kinds of videos at Mike the B-O-R-G number nine. And today we'll be covering something very special and something that's grown quite near and dear to my heart. Hawkeye Kate Bishop issues number one and two written by Marika Ninjkom with pencils by Enid Bailam, inks by Orin Jr. and colors by Brittany Peer on issue one and Brittany Peer and Chris Peter on issue two and letters by VC's Joe Caramagna. Now, before we get into the meat and potatoes of these issues or the pizza, as I assume Lucky would be much more happy to have, I would love to know everybody's experience with the character of Kate Bishop, whether it's through comics that you've read that she's been in before, whether it's through Marvel's most amazing TV show, and I can't even talk about how much I love it, uh, new Disney Plus show, Hawkeye or anything else or any other media that you know Kate Bishop from? So, you know, I was uh, working at a comic shop when Young Avengers started. So as soon as it was coming out, I was like, put one in my box. And then we got more posters and I was like, put two in my box. And then we got more promotional and I was like, all of the variants in my box. I'm not (laughs) fucking around. And then it came out and like, you know, we were, we didn't have enough copies for all the reservists. And uh, I'm like stabbing old, straight, befuddled white men through the hand. And I'm like, this will mean something. And, you know, I, I very protective of the Young Avengers. And I really love Kate in particular. I've read a little bit of, you know, comic books that had Kate Bishop in it. But then I've been able to watch a couple of episodes of New Hawkeye that's out on Disney. And oh my goodness, it's so good. So much fun. I really love how they give you some backstory and some development. You're not just coming in with like... How do you know all this hand-to-hand combat? And how do you know gymnastics and what's going on here? It's like, oh, okay. Oh, they explained some of this. I love that they give you a plausible explanation for a lot of the stuff's going on. And then, yeah, I got to read this. And I'm like, okay, this is fun. This is, instead of old man Hawkeye, this has got some young, fun, witty, you know, peppy banter to it. Like, yeah, let's do this. I'm like, girl, you're a little bit out of your depth, but I'm not mad at it. Yeah, and that's a lot of Kate's stories from everything that I've read. As I've mentioned before on the podcast, I have done my own personal mission to read every appearance of Kate Bishop. I am still in the midst of that, and I have realized there are certain media, I will not name name, cough, cough, Children's Crusade, cough, cough, that will just follow me everywhere I see. Mikey, what is your experience with Kate Bishop? Prior to a month ago, absolutely none. See, I if it's not Spider-Man or 
Alpha Flight, really in Marvel, it's not my forte. I really more like DC. Read comics on the regular. My wife and I have been watching the Hawkeye series. Absolutely love it. I think it's the best Disney Plus show that has come out. And if uh, Jeremy Renner is not going to be Hawkeye in the future, if she's going to be the Hawkeye of the future for the Avengers, I am 100% on board with that. I think she did a fantastic job. Mm-hmm. Oh, 100%. We, this isn't about the TV show. That's meant for a different thing. But uh, oh boy, that TV show uh, was everything I needed. It doesn't surprise me, Mikey, that you might not have known a lot about Kate Bishop. She's kind of like Marvel's best kept secret in a way, which is weird. It is a little shocking that a character that has so many notable appearances and has popularity among more avid comic readers that she didn't really have a lot of appearances this year. The other most notable one was her couple of appearances in America Chavez Made in America. But even then, it's not really appearance. She kind of just had a couple of phone calls and she was just kind of like there. It's kind of more like a cameo. I was very excited to hear this come out. So I would love to know, for people who don't have as much comic experiences, how did these two issues fare in giving you the idea of who Kate Bishop is? Yeah, like overall, I, I love the art. The The color is great. So is the line work. But just like, <sighs> I've been a woman. And the only time you get thigh gap is when your, your body A is naturally that way. And B, when you're severely underweight. And you can be slim and athletic and not have this thigh gap. But thigh gap is like, my, thigh gap is one of my number one irritations. Because it tells me that more than likely a, a, a male gaze was heavily involved with how the character was drawn. Mikey, I would love to know, since you're newer to Kate Bishop and you really only have the TV show to go off of, how did you feel about the characterization of Kate and these two issues? So I got a bit of alias Jessica Jones kind of vibe. But I like the... So at first I was hesitant on the choice of art. and But I think it's very bright and very colorful. And the background pops. It's very well detailed. Like I'm just skimming through the book. And you can see the, the scorch marks on the door very well placed. And same thing with the table. You can see the, uh, the shadowing on her phone when she's texting. And I think the artwork is very well done. And it pops. I thought the writing was very good too. It kept me engaged the whole time. And I'm really looking forward to the next issue, to be honest. But I think I like Kate's attitude in this. It's in the show. She was very much starstruck. But here she seems to have like a sense to her. And she goes, I'm, I know what I'm doing. I know my shit. And this is this is what I have to do. So when she sees her sister, she goes like, oh, no, somebody here. Tell me what to do. But like, listen, I got this. I'm an Avenger. And the whole time she carries that attitude throughout, which I think is a contrast to the show. Something else I'm also noticing is that Kate Bishop has some interesting qualities that are similarly found in the X titles. For one, she has a legacy name that is still being used by the originator. Laura is also and still Wolverine, just like Logan is Wolverine. Kate and Clint are both Hawkeye, which I think is pretty cool cool and she was the first Catherine to go by Kate and I love that she repeats herself like she stands her ground when it comes to her name because her sister refers to her as Katie and she's like it's Kate (laughs) very similar to how a uh, previously named Kitty uh, (laughs) is currently running around and asserting making sure people know no my name is Kate Nico Mm -hmm. since you're a little more familiar with Kate's characterization how do you feel about her in this issue you know, and I also want to comment, and it sounds so dumb, but like as a guy who, so my name is legally Nicholas, right? That's just, you know, my family's name. It's a very Greek thing, right? And I always hated Nick. Like I can't think of a name that I feel describes me less. 
And, you know, for years I fought to get people to call me Nicholas. It was a losing battle. I fought to get people to call me Nico. It was a losing battle. And one day early on in our relationship, my husband was like, you'll call him Nico or you'll die. And yeah, just sort of fixed it. But you'd be amazed how hard it really can be. I mean, actually, no, Raven, you would not. Yes. But you would be. I would know. Most people would be amazed how hard it is to get people to reform how they refer to you. And I think that is in so many ways a defining aspect of who Kate Bishop is. Kate Bishop is always looking to reframe the discussion of who she is. And I don't think it's because she doesn't want you to know who she is. It's because Kate Bishop isn't done yet. Kate Bishop is a transformative element. She might be inspired by Hawkeye, but early on, she also had some of Mockingbird's gear, you know? So we're talking about a character who... By virtue of being introduced to the world in her adolescence, fictional though it may be, she's representative of a coming of age and much like Kate Pride, trying to come of age on paper when, especially when you're a young woman and, you know, Kate's been around long enough that the horny cycle is coming back around every 20 years, the classic characters come back. So it's like a cyclical thing, you know, so like it's the classic X-Men in the 60s and then it's the all new X-Men in the 70s and then look at it. It. The classic X-Men came back as X-Factor in the 80s. And then in the 90s, it was a return of the all-new, all-different X-Men for their 20th anniversary. And this just keeps happening. And then, you know, you wind up at a place where these characters are never allowed to grow or move forward. And one of the ways Kate Bishop has avoided that is by consistently refusing to be one thing. For a while, she was banging a spaceman. And like, that was hot. Now that spaceman is banging Hercules. And Everybody's cool with it. But, you know, we're talking about a woman so early in her life. You know, Kate Bishop is this mercurial, changing, transformative, beautiful pageant of many women. And I think this represented the wide birth of selves that we've seen drawn through the years. I was very pleased with it. It really felt like they had a sense of her voice and the stylization being a throwback to the Aja Wu and Rodriguez years of Hawkeye. You know, it was a really terrific touch. It reminded me of those cutie Perez heads that they used on the issues where Kate was out in LA facing Madame Mask, right? I loved that. So yeah, that's how I feel. I really get that position. It's probably why I'm so drawn to Kate Bishop. I really do appreciate the self-assuredness that Kate Bishop has and kind of almost always represents the big FU to comic norms where she doesn't really play by the standard comic rules and she kind of just consistently does whatever Kate Bishop wants to do. And I really appreciate that about her. Something I really do like about this issue and I'd love to get everybody else's opinions on is her relationship with her sister. People who are uh, more well known into Kate's history would might maybe recognize that Susan Bishop is the person whose wedding got crashed, where the Young Avengers met Kate for the first time, which I think is pretty interesting. That was our first introduction to Kate, where we see her challenging societal norms of not really wanting to go along with her sister's wedding. She didn't really care for it, but she's there because she enjoys her sister, and she, at least at that point, she had a good relationship. And through this, we discover that their relationship is a little more tumultuous and a little little more strain where they both don't agree with the other's ideas and I would love to know everybody's opinions on this relationship that we're now getting into between Kate and Susan. Well it was definitely you could tell it was two very estranged sisters who who grew up in very very different ways but yeah like you could you could tell she's the older sister like 
but a, like an older sister who's grown up with money. So she thinks she's in charge, but she still bends really, really quickly to uh, anything that even hints at being a threat. Whereas younger sister attitude, she's like, I am untouchable. <laughs> Look, I'm just going to go ahead and flash around my investigator badge. and like, girl, it was definitely well written. I like, or at least I like the way it was written. But yeah, it's like, oh yeah, that's, that's definitely younger versus older sibling kind of hierarchy gone on there and you can see it quite well boy she is doing everything she can not to listen to her older sister i think her older sister is taking on a stereotypical male role and hear me out because there was a specific line where she says i took over dad's company and though i'm I'm watching succession on hbo max and it kind of i got the vibes of some of the characters there because they're trying to take over their father's company and they're all males same thing here she's trying to fit in in this male it's i'm i again i don't know the backstory so i'm assuming it's a rather large company that a typical typical male role and she has to hold up not only this this appearance of a of a CEO or high executive but also of a person in high society and that clashes with Kate's not rebellious but a I do what I want I do my own thing attitude but they aren't like there's no hate there. It's just you're in this world. I'm in this world. Yeah, it's it's almost always the the brother or the uncle is, you know, I inherited this. and You never had to worry about, you know, keeping this family together and da 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 da. Exactly. So, yeah, no, I get what you're getting at. And they form and they become they become like this Mr. Monopoly, Mr. Peanut Man looking <laughs> hybrid person later on in life. And the cycle continues. And, you know, she's trying to step in and, and take over. And but there's no uh, apathy amongst the sisters, it seems. I don't know if there's a little bit of like a resentment or if there's a there's some you know some stuff may have happened in the past i'm sure jonah you know uh, nico way more than i do no there's no real hate there you know what i mean they're they still you know they're sisters and they still know that funny enough there's really not much more else to their past besides this this is our first real instance of it outside of her initial appearance of her wedding getting ruined susan hasn't really appeared in comics she has a couple of mentions but she's not a character utilized so this is our first like foray into that relationship relationship and it's a very interesting relationship i will say and i do like and do kind of hope that at the end not that the relationship will be repaired and all will be well but more so they can be on the path of slowly getting there because that's how the real world works you don't just fix relationship overnight it takes a lot more time and it takes a lot more steps and understanding of okay it starts from maybe a phone call once a month or maybe you see each other once a month or whatever you do but i am very interested to see how how this continued relationship will play out and speaking of relationships this is a weird segue to ask this question this is a very interesting setting to be putting kate in this manor resort that has clowns and performers is weird it's very <laughs> weird and i would i'm i don't know what is going on it's very different from a lot of issues that i've read not even just from kate bishop but it almost feels a little bit like Kate is in an arcade murder world, but it's extremely less dangerous. It's kind of like more extremely inconvenient world because not a lot seems to be happening that's like dangerous. But like a kid got kidnapped, but she was still on property in a shed. I'm a little befuddled as to what exactly is going on, but I would love to know how everybody felt about these two issues. It almost reminds me of a video game. I can't remember. I think it was called like 
Happyville or Joyville or something like that. And basically, you know, in order to avoid detection and getting like in serious trouble and or killed, you had to pretend like you were happy, even though you could see the world for what it was. And it was just horrible and disastrous and monstrous. And basically you'd take drugs so everything would look all right. And they've also got an element that uh, the there's a narrator in the background saying that it, this is part of an experiment. So I'm just like, huh, I wonder what the experiment is. You could tell the guys with the red vests who look like they should be valet or, you know, some sort of enforcement slash orderly type. And the, the creepy ass circus performers, I'm guessing, are the like the nurses who can administer drugs and whatnot. So yeah, it's just, it's a weird and demented ride, as it were, all wrapped up in a murder mystery, kind of a, a kind of like a murder she wrote thing going on here. And, you know, there's a long history of Hawkeyes and circuses and people in clown makeup. And so it kind of tracks. And, you know, I think one of the things that we're perhaps reacting to is the fact that it's Kate Bishop, not with a team. I can't think of too many Kate Bishop by herself, completely solo stories. Most Kate Bishop stories do have backup. So the fact that she's on her own is definitely, I think, what's putting her family in the spotlight. I think it's part of what's affecting our view of Kate as well. It's such an extreme close-up on a character that we're used to getting in increments. Definitely. It's really interesting that you bring that up, Nico, because we are even given sprinkles of Kate's other relationships. You are right in that a lot of Kate's development often comes from her interactions with other people. I find it very fascinating that this is, for a character that's been around for 15 years, this is her, this is one of, if not very few examples of her going solo. And I I wonder what that says about the Young Avengers in general, because it's not like a lot of the other Young Avengers have had a ton of solo stories either. The Young Avengers are one of those things that I think are kept in many ways kind of magically in that, no, please stay Young Avengers bubble. Mm-hmm. Well, I think they they keep <laughs> it's that weird thing like you said before where we never seem to like really see a character grow progress forward as far as age goes so yeah I think a lot of the young Avengers got stuck as young Avengers but when you have very young people doing heroic things they do tend to work better as a team because on their own what's their conflict what's their drive most of them have not experienced enough to have either a stable grasp on who they are as person that would still make them functional for the most part but yeah just i i like that they've given her her own series because it does help to age her up a little bit and and give her a bit more um independence and gravitas as a as a functional human being for me, the thing that it reminds me the most of, and I don't know if it's because it's somebody watching on like a blurred screen CCT camera, is WandaVision. It, it just reminds me of uh, of an overarching villain. Well, not so much villain. There is someone watching everything going on, and while this person seems like their plans are nefarious, though I fail to see how stealing a ring as well as kidnapping a child but keeping the child on property, how bad is this person really? But I would love to know if anybody has a theory on if, will this be in somebody big will this be a completely new villain do we not care <laughs> i would love to know 
Well, I have a theory. I think that there are either hypnosis or mind control drugs that are being used on these people, which I think they're, (laughs) I think they're either trying to fleece all of these rich people who are coming in for wellness treatments, or they're trying to see how far they can drive a human mind before it like snaps and breaks while also creating video evidence of these bad deeds. Cause who's going to really believe that, oh no, I was under hypnosis or I was under mind control, you know, and it's a way to take and fleece every last person that's there. You know, you're taking family rings, which a lot of places, you know, they use the the ring or the family crest as, you know, hey, yeah, no, I belong here. Oh, this letter was sealed by such and such person from this family. So yeah, we know it's good because that's that's their ring imprint right there. So, yeah, I think I think they're playing a, a weird long con out of the 1960s. Yeah, you know, I get definite like 60s sort of circus of crime kind of vibes. Mm-hmm. It feels very what a nefarious plot we have unhinged <laughs> upon these unsuspecting rich humans you know what i mean it's yeah it's got some very you know tap the fingers together so i also think it's a really great opportunity to create some villains for kate because one of the things that you know positive or negative on whatever company one of the things marvel has not done a great job of in its efforts to create brilliant new generations of characters you know we're seeing jane foster in numerous heroic roles we see kate bishop we have laura the failure for the most part has been in creating villainous parallels to support the new iteration of the character's legacy right we're not seeing and i don't want lady tooth you know to fight laura (laughs) as wolverine i don't want you know swords woman to fight kate bishop as hawkeye which sometimes i go to say kate hawkeye as bishop and i know that's not correct (laughs) so i think this is a great opportunity to give her a villain because and you know i think we just fucking saw it with echo Mm -hmm. who was echo's villain in the hawkeye show not a major character that we all really recognize and you know there were ultimate manipulations that kind of pieced together something but it wasn't like oh right that you know when we think about wolverine we're like oh shit that time he fought Deathstriker. Oh, mm-hmm. fuck. That time he fought Ogin. Or the time Magneto ripped the adamantium out of his bones in what should have been a punchline but became a 10-year-long story arc, right? <laughs> you know, we go to certain things. But, like, when I'm like, oh, that time Kate Bishop fought cancellation. <laughs> that time Kate Bishop's biggest enemy was cultural perceptions of misogyny. <laughs> like, I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about the fact that they can't seem to come up with a a fuck yeah kind of villain for a lot of these heroes. And this is a really great opportunity to give Kate Bishop her very own, you know, something, someone. And, you know, I'm just always nervous that we're going to get like, you know... Lady Liberty, and she's going to be a female Captain America, and her nemesis is going to be the Pink Skull. Communist has never looked so fabulous, and like, I have these nightmares that we're going to get these feminized villains, so I'll take a weird villain as the setup any day. Right, like, oh, I I hear you on so many levels, like, please don't take just, like, a male villain and then just feminize, or or worse yet, what I'm honestly truly afraid of is that they'll make their villains queer, because, hey, we've got more queer representation, let's bring on the queer villains, I'm like, oh, please don't do that, please don't do that, there's going to be 
be so many tropes that you're going to fall straight into. I just know it. Like, please, for the love of goodness. Now, Mikey, as someone who doesn't really know Kate Bishop's comic book history, how would you feel if this was ultimately revealed to be a kind of like Kate Bishop's nemesis? And this is where we get to meet Kate Bishop's nemesis. I think that'd be awesome, but I hope it's somebody brand new mm-hmm. and something different, not a Kingpin clone. I love that this didn't read like an Avengers book and it didn't really read like a Captain America solo. I have enjoyed very much that Marvel is putting in a lot more effort into creating important singular narratives for solo titles, something that drove me off of X-Men for a solid five years was the like Magnum XL volume of X solo titles for a couple of years. It was egregious. It really was. And I'm not knocking anybody's work by any stretch, but I couldn't financially keep up with the number of characters that had solo books. There was one month that was like six. There's there's only 198 X-Men at that point. Suck a dick. Stop it. This is too many. Bad. Bad. Bad, bad, bad. So like, you know, you get out the newspaper, you roll it up and you bonk them on the head and you hope they do fewer solo titles next month. But one of the things that I've really enjoyed coming out of this new generation of characters, especially, we're seeing it a lot more in the solo titles for America Chavez this year, Shang-Chi. We're seeing it here. I'll be honest, I didn't love the dark hawk mini that just happened but it definitely had its own vibe it definitely had its own sound and this goes in that category this felt like a kate bishop book even if i don't know what the fuck a kate bishop book is it didn't feel like a cap a carol danvers book you know as much as i love my space cop she you know this wasn't her and i get what mikey's saying with there's a jessica jones vibe but you know when i think jessica jones i think empty beer bottles used condoms and a junkie in the hallway this and read all of a, them are jessica yeah exactly this read a little bit more like murder mystery on the orient express but stylized <laughs> in the legos friends set packaging like the cutie purple and pink pastel one it's not for girls because i love it too so you know, the, <laughs> but it was like murder on the lego friends orient express um starring kate bishop and also some rich people and i liked that right i i like that it was was definitely a change of pace because instead of something being oh this is gonna be more supernatural or super scroll or you know alien blah 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 i i like this is feels at least slightly more cerebral and and takes a different a different approach to doing these things i'd love to see if it is much like a 1960s you know murder mystery on the orient express but with lego friends like that w- that would be interesting that'd definitely be different and i kind of am looking forward to seeing it um because yeah to, to me kate bishop will always kind of register as as being a very young person. So I see this as a, a good opportunity to to give her some age and flesh out the character a bit more and help in my at least in my mind help age her up a little bit into her early generation. I'm just excited to see who who's behind the scenes and see how this story arc ends. I haven't been this excited for a book since Avengers vs. X-Men, I think. Something that I appreciate about this, uh, and to compare it to another Jessica who also happens to be a private investigator, the little bit of Spider-Woman that we read to yep. 
yep, 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 yep. Her appearances over in X Men when she was an X Men fan because Chris Claremont got to write some Spider Woman. Uh, that was really fun. A lot of this is very campy. It's very high campy, and I uh, mm-hmm. I like that. And I I also appreciate the lower power level to give Kate a challenge without it feel like she is a stomping or b like she will need to rely on her friends that have that are on a, a higher power level. I like that. Yeah, I'm definitely there with you on that. I I think ah that you know what actually that feels more like what I was looking for when I was trying to put together my thoughts. You're absolutely right. It's it's great that it feels like it's on her power level and not that she's going to have to oh I got to call the team. Like it feels like this is made specifically for her. She can handle it. It's going to be a rough ride, but I think she handled it, which is kind of nice cuz I don't always need to see superpowers coming into play, you know, in a comic. Especially when the character themselves doesn't lend themselves to high stakes and that's such a point of the character they're always you know it's always very i'm just an everyday normal guy with a bunch of arrows in my bag i'm not a god i don't throw a shield i didn't invent armor i don't and then we can go through 27 much more capable avengers i'm just the guy with the arrows like you know what i mean like that's his whole shtick so if you had her fighting mm, (laughs) galactus i'd be like okay i'd I'd definitely be in for i'd be in if kate bishop had to stop galactus i would be super in but (laughs) i don't know everyone else what in the name of squirrel girl are you on X is for Podcast Mutants, Magic, and Marvels is brought to you by the Cage Club Network. So for all things media, check out cageclub.me. That's cageclub.me. And for all things X is for Podcast, check out X is for Podcast on Twitter and YouTube.